Hi, my name's Don Letts. I guess I'm known as a filmmaker, a DJ, a radio broadcaster. I was in a band called Big Audio Dynamite. Um, I directed a movie called uh, Dance Hall Queen. And um, I'm old. I've been around the block a, a while, so I've done a lot of things. I mean, the notable things, I guess, for the reggae archive would include doing the video for Musical Youth, Past the Duchy amongst countless others. I was going to say I'm a latecomer to Brent because I actually grew up in Brixton, although not a lot of difference. I actually moved over to Kensal Rise about 28, 30 years ago. So I've actually been here for a while. Um, other than that, I mean, I'm one of, I don't know, I guess I'm, yeah, I'm a Brent resident that's still very much active in music, in promoting reggae. I'm still out there as a reggae DJ promoting nationally and internationally, playing nationally and internationally. I'm what you call first-generation British-born black, child of the Windrush generation. So, you know, when I was growing up, the emerging reggae music was all around me. And you almost took it for granted, but it was an integral, integral part of kind of helping us to kind of, you know, work out, talk about our culture, and in, indeed be turned on to our culture, because we certainly weren't being taught that at school. You know, so it's through the music that you're hearing about, I don't know, maybe Marcus Garvey or Rastafari or whatever. It was a major part of kind of helping me to be the man I am today, because a lot of the cultural lessons I got from them, I got from the music and sound system culture. I mean, that's where we went to get our education was the sound system. You know what I mean? Um, because we weren't allowed in the West End clubs and things like that. So between sort of sound systems and the blues dance, not only did we find out about our culture, but we could also talk about kind of what was bothering us and what was on our mind. So it was very much a community event. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I've been living in Brent for 30 years and I continue to promote reggae directly or indirectly. I have a weekly show on the BBC called Culture Clash and every single week, a quarter of my show is reggae. You know, old and new, because I think it's very important that we embrace the new as well. You can't rely on the tried and tested. So that's that there. I mean, I've done a bunch of podcasts that um, that talk about the history of reggae. Um, I haven't made any music videos for quite a while, but in my day, you know, I made Bob Marley's One Love, Waiting in, and He's Waiting in Vain. I did Bl Black Uhuru's Solidarity, Lincoln Quasi Johnson's Great Insurrection. What else again? Maxi Priest and Shabarank's House Call, Aswad, Smile. Man, I can't even remember. Enough music videos. So... My contribution is, um, it continues. It doesn't stop. Like I said, my parents are of the Windrush generation. It's strictly, well, we say reggae, but back then it was more like rock steady and blues and the, uh, and the reggae was just emerging. So it's people like Prince Buster and Toots and the Maytals. Although, you know, the old school Jamaicans, they like their country and Western as well. Along with some crooners, people like um, Perry Como and uh, Nat King Cole. But it's funny, the old, yeah, the old folk, they liked a bit of country and western. I never understood that. See, the first record I probably bought was the Beatles' Penny Lane. <laughs> but the first reggae record I probably bought was the album, Tighten Up Volume 2. And they were cheap back in the day. They were budget compilations put together by Trojan Records. And they absolutely smashed it back in the day, those, that Tighten Up series particularly. In fact, it soundtracked um, the emerging multiracial, a new multiracial a movement called skinheads. And I'm talking about the fashion version, not the fascist version that would emerge in the mid, early to mid seventies. 
you know, it's interesting. You know, I've got to say this. Reggae played a really important part in integrating black and white youth on the streets, on you know, on, on the dance floor, in schools. And it was the way that we kind of communicated with each other. You know what I mean? You'd either, well, as a child, I'd go to, my dad had a sound system. My dad had a sound system called Duplet Supersonic Sound. But it's not like the sound systems that, you know, we talk about nowadays with the one red bulb in the corner and the ganja-filled room and the bass, you know, destroying your ears. These were like dances that they'd ha have, usually after church, in the church hall on a Sunday afternoon. And they'd be playing there, you know, Prince Buster and Maytals and all that stuff. But it was a way for the kind of the Windrush generation to stay in touch with each other and get news from back home. So it was very much a community affair. And then as I became a teenager, you know, you're going to um, sound system events. Back then they were held in, in some of the town halls. I mean, and I was living in Brixton, so I'd be going to Brixton Town Hall. And there was another thing that happened in uh, Camberwell. And then it was clubs like the Bally High. So yeah, a lot of sound systems in the early days. And then a bit of radio. You'd be listening to, who is it back in the day? Steve Barnard and Munlike. And... Uh, Steve Barnard, I've forgotten the other one. And of course, Rodigan, long time, you know, uh, reggae soldier. I, I'm, I'm and I've got to say, and standing up in the reggae shops on a Friday night after you'd earned your well-earned wages, you know, then you get, get to hear the latest imports from Jamaica. You go to your local record shop, you stand up in the corner, man would play a tune and you'd give him a nod and he'd put it aside for you. Yeah, good time. I mean, listen, I mean, listen if, if you're into bass culture and sound system culture and reggae, you know, it's really easy nowadays to be tapped into a kind of social network where you just, you know, you find out about shit, man. You know, whether it be through, like I said, social media or doing my radio show, because I've got to do the radio show. People send me a lot of stuff. And then I'm, I'm on the DJ circuit. So, you know, I cross paths with a lot of the other DJs. Um, yeah, it's just part of my life and my liberty. One tune I've got to stop playing because I think it's Almost Jamaica's most famous tune. Dawn Penn's No, No, No. Anytime I'm in trouble, I drop that. No, no problem. You know, always mash it up to dance. Wherever I am in the world, man. Anytime I've got a problem, yeah. Dawn Penn's No, No, No. I mean, Brent's part in the whole reggae story is silent but deadly. I mean, people have heard of people like Janet Kay and General Levy, but there's a lot of unsung heroes out there. For instance, I mean, like the late, great Delroy Washington or Carla Marie Williams, for instance. I mean, listen, Brent's a big airy man. And it's undoubtedly played its part in the dissemination of Jamaican music, you know, not only across London, but across the whole of the UK. That might be through reggae dances that are held in Harlesden or the various sound systems that are held all over the place. Not to mention the artists that are actually born and, and, and grown here and created music here. And again, there's studios. Sorry, I forgot the whole studio thing. There's an actual history of um, studios in Brent. So, yeah, I mean, like I say, its input is silent but deadly. I guess anywhere there's a large proportion of Afro-Caribbeans. You know, there's always going to be reggae soundtracking, the food stores and the barber shops on the, you know, it's a, it's a kind of, what is it? It's, it's, it's got its own internal economy, you know, and reggae soundtracks that, you know, and there's, yeah, there's things I don't want to get into economically, but yeah, the thing, you know, it's a, it's a finely tuned operation if you know how to tune into it. But reggae is indeed, you know, the sort of the lifeblood of all of that. Listen, anybody who understands Jamaica and sound system culture and the whole world of reggae knows that style and music go hand in hand. 
And it's always informed what I do, not only what I, what I do, what I wear, and indeed my attitude. And interestingly, it, what's interesting is that it's rubbed off on my white brethren as well, because now they're, you know, you can hear the man talking about them yard and what's guanin and, you know, even the way they kind of walk down the street and all that stuff. So it's interesting that a lot of the white youth them have picked up on Jamaican aspects of Jamaican attitude and style and done their own thing with it. Indeed, that's how the skinhead thing first started. It was a mashup of white working class kids with Jamaican rude boy ethics, you know? So yeah, music and style, yeah, they're inseparable. And in the UK, yeah, that's like taken to the max. You can't separate music and style really, not as far as I'm concerned anyway, not in my world. You know, one of the, you know what I love about reggae? It's a living thing. It never stays in its own kind of groove. You know, whether it be the new lick on, you know, dance on the street or the new hairstyle or, you know, whatever the topics. I mean, you know, even the language is constantly evolving and changing. It's a living, breathing thing. And I think that's one of the most exciting things about reggae and sound system culture. It's very reactive to the kind of, you know, immediate cultural environment. You know, if something happens today, man's singing about it tomorrow and he's pressing up the record the next day. You know, it's kind of, it has a kind of, what is it, a musical reportage quality about it. Always had that. You know, I remember when they're singing about poison flour in Jamaica, when a bunch of people died from eating poison flour, and the next day in London, you know, we're reading and listening about that. You know what I mean? So it has that kind of musical reportage aspect about it that's vital in kind of keeping the community in touch with itself and making sure that the right and the left hand know what's going in, as the white youth say. <laughs> you know, Growing up as a black British youth in the um, late 60s, early 70s, reggae was an integral part of my politicization and making me more militant as well. And it came at a time when we really needed it, you know, because our parents had come over from Jamaica and they'd kind of got screwed over by the, you know, by the whole thing. And we recognized that and we reacted to the way our parents were being treated by becoming more militant. And you have to understand, this is, is, this is in the wake of the whole, you know, civil rights movement in America and all that stuff's going on. So, you know, we're like angry young men. And along comes somebody like, let's say, Bob Marley with these tunes, Slave Driver, 400 Years, Burning and Looting, Three O'Clock Roadblock. And these tunes and the subject matter resonated with the youth on the streets of the UK, you know, so all of a sudden we're getting militant, we're getting politicized, and we're not prepared to put up with the shit that our parents did, which would manifest itself in things like the Notting Hill riots in the late 70s. You know, and people forget, you know, reggae ain't just a party music, it's always had that duality. Yes, man can go and dance in the dance hall and whatever, but when you need some food for inspiration, you know, it's there. I mean, listen, for some people, I don't know, reggae might be a hobby or something that they do on a weekend. It's part of my liberty. You know, I've got major ed education from that, inspiration from it. It's very much a part of who I am today and continues to do that. It keeps me in touch with current themes, what's going on in Jamaica and what's going on right here in the UK. And, um, you know, I'm all about the bass, man. As long as it's got a wicked bass line, I am there. So it still gets me out of, out of bed on a day-to-day -day basis. I think, you know, people don't understand how this music is kind of, you know, Jamaica's this tiny little island that's spent hundreds of years under colonization. And through its music, Jamaican culture has kind of colonized the planet in the 21st century. You know what I mean? 
And I guess, you know, in a small way, I play a part in that because when I DJ out and about, it's all about the legacy and history of Jamaican music and bass culture. I mean, look, as far as helping this whole thing move forward, I mean, more funds for the youth to have access to equipment and facilities that would keep them off the streets and focus them in a creative direction. I know it sounds corny, but you know it makes sense. A thing I'm most proud of, besides the videos I've done for Bob Marley and doing the video for Past the Duchy, is my film Dance Hall Queen. Because I, I, I remember as a youth going to see A Harder They Come, Jamaica's most famous film, back in the early 70s, where I was looking for clues and identities as to you know, who I was and where I was coming from. And A Harder They Come did that for me. And I, always, and I remember thinking, you know, one day I want to express myself in some visual way. And with a bit of punk rock, inspiration in 1997 um, I got to make Dancehall Queen which I'm tremendously proud of because after the harder they come it's Jamaica's most famous film and for a black British youth you know the way it went down in Jamaica it was shown in the Carib same place that they premiered the harder they come that was the biggest buzz for me man to see how the people of Jamaica received that film and it still gets me enough props when I go to Jamaica <laughs>